Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. From Sundance TV and Sundance Now, this is The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. Join me as I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance True Crime documentaries. Tony and Susie were our gods. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen, Christians. They told us when we would be rewarded. They told us when we were going to be punished. Beat your child with a rod to save them from hell. Every single time Tony Alamo was going to issue a beating, somebody's life was going to change forever. There wasn't an aspect of life that I don't believe we had that was not in survival mode. It can be devastating growing up like that and becoming an adult and having to realize you don't have to fight anymore. This season, I'm going behind the scenes of the four-part docuseries Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo. Last time, we talked with former cult members Carrie Miller and Jessica Cooper about the massive criminal enterprise Tony and Susan Alamo ran behind the cover of their religious status in the 1970s. The fraudulent business empire and the coercive cult control instilled by Tony and Susan were parallel forces that amplified each other. But their control over youths they met on the street and brought into the fold was only so deep. They had an even greater opportunity for control over the children born into the cult, who had never known an outside world or another god. From the beginning, Tony and Susan were exploiting their members to sustain their celebrity televangelist lifestyle. By the time they relocated the community to Falk, Arkansas, their grip on members had tightened through isolation, family separation, deprivation, and indoctrination. By any standard, it was a cult. But upon Susan's death in 1982, Tony's actions became even more cruel and unhinged. Susan had always been the direct line to God. Losing her was a blow to Tony and a threat to his power. So he refused to let her go, literally. He kept her body unburied and rotting in a mausoleum on their compound. He ordered his followers to pray around the clock for her to rise again. Spoiler, it didn't work. But it did propel Tony into a cycle of abuse, polygamy, and pedophilia that wasn't present when Susan was around. Tony transformed into the prophet of God, and the prophet of God was never wrong. What's hard to say is if Tony really believed that, 
Was it all a con on the members? Or was Tony also conned by his delusion? Trapped in a kind of Stockholm syndrome to his own larger-than-life persona? In this episode, we're reuniting former members Benjamin Risha, Rebecca Gay, and Jessica Cooper to discuss their traumatic experiences growing up inside the Alamo cult with our producers Leslie Mattingly and Fenton Bailey. Bex, are you on right now, Becca? Uh, yes, I'm here. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Good to hear your voice. <laughs> Hi, Rebecca. It's Leslie. Hey, Leslie. How are you? Good. How are you? I yes. love you. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I'm good. This feels like a reunion. Here's Rebecca Gay on a typical day growing up in the compound in Georgia Ridge. It always started the same. We um, ate communally. So we would go to the cafeteria first thing in the morning. We would have breakfast that was prepared for us. Then afterwards, we had a mandatory prayer meeting right after breakfast. And then we would go to school. After school, we would have a few hours where we would have to do different jobs around the compound. We would have to take a prayer hour and a reading hour every day. And then after dinner, we would have another mandatory prayer meeting. So we went to church three times a day, every day of our life, our entire lives. After all of that, we would go to where we would make the jackets and we would work into the early morning. Susie died when we were around eight. And Tony, he was already a crazy person, but his he got crazier. So I believe that when Susie was alive, I don't think she would have allowed the slave labor from the children anyway. But once Tony started doing the jackets, it was all hands on deck. We worked with zeal. We, we really believed that what we were doing was God's mission. We were dedicated you know, workers. <laughs> there was no slacking. Every single jacket that was made, we rhinestoned them by hand. We airbrushed them by hand. We had an assembly line. Well, their hands were little, and the rhinestones were little. So they could pick up the rhinestones and put them in the rim and then stack them on a tray so that the people doing them could hurry up and rhinestone the jackets. It helped production. It sounds like a sweatshop. The profits that came in from this coerced labor went straight into Tony's pockets. He was driving a Cadillac and the children making these jackets were scrambling to get their basic needs met. Everything we got was outdated. We did not, it was what the grocery stores were getting rid of. So it could be bad, it could have worms in it. It was not high quality food. One of my jobs was to actually offload the dono truck. So, I mean, we would literally just bring it in and you'd, you'd have green meat in one thing and just rotten food and you'd, you know, you'd chuck that aside and that would go to the pig farm and then you'd sort and get all the, the food that was quasi edible or, you know, just fine. And that would go into the cafeteria where it'd be prepared. When we would get donations of food, Benji, I don't know if you remember this, but we they set out the boxes, the banana boxes, and all of us kids would just swarm over to the banana boxes of donations. But they would be canned goods that had no wrappers on them. So remember, we they whatever they couldn't sell, we got. So so we would you would have all of these young kids sitting there shaking cans, trying to read the label. Oh, I think this is fruit cocktail. No, that's mine. <laughs> oh my god. 
when we got out, we discovered the hierarchy of needs and how human beings, we, what, we, what we decide is most important first. And then once those are taken care of, then we do with the lesser things. I really learned that when we were growing up, we were always in survival mode, whether it be for our food or our safety or just camaraderie, um, social aspect. There wasn't an aspect of life that I don't believe we had that was not in survival mode. It can be devastating growing up like that and becoming an adult and having to realize you don't have to fight anymore. I don't know that all of us ever came to the place where we realized we don't have to fight anymore. Many of us suffer with complex post-traumatic stress disorder where the fight or flight response it's almost like it has a short in it and we are always in fight or flight. I know for myself, I live in fight or flight. How does it how does that manifest for you, Becky, that fight or flight? Rebecca, I totally do yes. go by Becky. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Susie Alamo used to call me that. It's like oh, very, God. very oh, triggering. I know. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, like, I was totally, say that. It's like the first thing I will snap somebody's head off for calling me that. <laughs> Manifest in a lot of ways. So for one thing, I'm constantly taking the temperature of a room. I'm always looking at every human in the room for the slightest change in their body language. If their breathing changes, if their eyebrow raises, I'm always looking and listening to see if somebody is angry, yeah. has their mood shifted. Do I need to de-escalate something before it turns into something? And it... Because you want acceptance. You want them to accept you because you feel so out of place, right? Well, it goes beyond that. You know, when Tony's moods would change, you could go from having a good day to having your ass beat half to death. So in real life, how that translates for me is if I notice that something as simple, if my husband is looking for a missing sock, immediately I feel completely panic struck. And it, my husband's never hit me. He's never, he doesn't scream at me. He doesn't abuse me. He, he hasn't, I've been married for 23 years, but it is that old programming. It is that fight or flight that just stays on all the time. I'm always prepared for battle, always. People coming out of prison are the same way. After years of being locked in rooms with unstable people, you become twitchy like a prey animal. I did. The difference is, I never worshipped any of those unstable and violent cellmates. I can't imagine relying on such a person for my well-being and safety. The person that I was dealing with doing a lot of psychological counseling, he had a PhD in emotional well-being, and he finally looked at me and asked me the most important question that changed my life at that moment. He said, Jessica, you do not have to please everyone. You don't. And that might sound so simple to so many, but to me, it was like, wow, you've just changed my world. I don't. You know, it, it was, I did not realize that I had been operating for years, even after leaving the cult, on thinking that if I didn't please everyone, I was failing miserably. Tony was really big on pushing no contention. The word contention, if you were of a quote, contentious spirit, then you really had the devil in you that needed to get beaten out of you. So if you were ever caught arguing or or in any way disagreeing with someone, you, you were going to get in trouble because someone would really tell on you. And that's, I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble or someone else did. Right. And also there was, another thing was no division because if yeah. you're a house divided cannot stand. So if you were 
arguing with somebody, there was division, there was a spirit of division, and it had to be cast out or beaten out. Tony would be on the speakerphone and say how many swats the child got. Grown men, like lumberjack-looking huge men, would lift us in the air, and then somebody else would get the Board of Education and literally hold it like a baseball bat and he would tell them to chop wood. To contrast with Becca's experience, I had a really, really fun time most of my life there. I think most of the kids you talk to will talk about the horses we had, the ponds that we fished in, the sports that we played. We, we, we hiked, we had forest everywhere. I listened to Benjamin talk about his life and I swear it sounds like we were born and raised in two totally different places. I know. I swear I to God, because my life was not like that. I don't remember looking at the property. The last, When we went and did our interviews, that was the first time in my life I saw that property for what it was, like being beautiful. Not everybody bought in to the religious part of it. I did. And so... When I look back on my life, I don't remember one minute. I cannot recall a moment in my life where I did not feel fear and terror. I was always looking over my shoulder. And it wasn't just looking over my shoulder to protect myself, but having to watch my friends being beaten until their eyes are rolled in their head and their pants are stuck to their body in blood, that was something that I was always trying to prevent from happening again. That was the kind of freedom I had. But you were protected because yeah, you Tony. were Tony's son. Whereas we, there, we didn't have protection. So your story is so night and day from most of us. I think that we did have good times, Rebecca. I do. I think, you know, if we, if we really thought about it, we would think of the times where we were crushing on the same guy and laughing or whatever. But I think that the times that we had that were bad were so devastating that some of the stuff has been pushed back that I don't remember. I did not know how awful that place was until I started disconnecting from the thought processes. And, and then it blew my mind how awful this place was. I had zero concept of life outside of the church. As a matter of fact, we were told that kids outside of the church were being beaten and abused and um, put needles put in them and they were being put on drugs and alcohol and their parents were abusing them. I was scared of getting abused, but I was being abused. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, please. It's like, oh no, Briar Bear, don't put me in the Briar Patch. Like I'm already getting abused. I want to be abused like those kids were being abused because the abuse I was getting sucked. You might think that Rebecca would have some special protection or support because her dad worked as Tony Alamo's personal bodyguard. So the first 10 years of my life, the only person that abused me was my dad. And a lot of times he would beat me at home so that Tony wouldn't beat me publicly. But when my dad left at 10, he left as the devil. And so I now was the daughter of the devil. And I had no protection. And my life went from being pretty okay, I guess, to being hell. I remember that shift for you, and I remember how it just seemed like you could do nothing right. You were always getting in trouble, and that sweet, funny, always laughing little girl that, that I always knew started to become super serious and terrified. So maybe I was happy when I was young. I don't remember it, but I can tell you that at a certain point, I was like actually alive in hell. 
Tony would sometimes pick on people. He would pick on a child, and that would, that would last for like months. And at one point, Rebecca, you were that child. And I got called to the office, which is also where the phone was that Tony would talk on. And Tony said, you know, I heard you called me a liar. And he said, you know, the Bible says that if you smite the simple, the wise will be made aware. And God's telling me that you need to be smitten. So he told four people to come forward. I was 13 years old. And one at a time, they pulled their arm back as far as they could, and they smacked me in the face. Do you remember when we were kids? We would talk about what if our parents left the church and tried to take us. And we would talk about how we would kick them. <laughs> oh my God. And we would claw their eyes out. And I would run yeah. away and I would put them on report to Tony and I would kill yeah. them. There was no loyalty in families. None. No. Because mm -hmm. the second That's someone so turned against the church, it was only loyalty to the church. For me, this demonstrates better than anything else the depth of Tony Alamo's psychological abuse how thoroughly he was able to sever the parent-child bond. Speaking from the perspective of being a child in the compound and then having children in the compound, it really tore me up as I began to have children and start to see them get older. It really tore me up realizing how my parents could have stepped in to protect me in some areas and they never did. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's frustrating when I think about how my, my mom could have taken me out at 12 years old and life would have been so different. Everyone knew that it was a con. The agreement was that all these people that had violent past or criminal past would join this organization. They would give up the, that life for a better life following God. What happened was as the decades went on, a lot of those people left because they saw what Tony and Sue were doing, that they weren't actually keeping their end of the agreement. I knew there was no one to reach out to, to protect me. And that was the most horrible feeling ever. So what I did was I reached out to the person that they told us was our protector, which was God. So I literally went to the bathroom and threw myself on the ground, praying, God, don't let them, this happen to me. I'm going to die when that board hits me. <laughs> I mean, these are like boys, but I'm just 11 years old and I'm not going to, I mean, I was terrified and I got up and I came out and he said, lean over that chair. He hit me once and I flew. I, I mean, I flew up and he says, if you, if you flew up again, I'm going to hold you down. I'm going to have people hold you down. He hit me again. And then he stopped and he looked at me and he said, that's enough. That was probably the first time for me. I realized that maybe there is something to this God thing. You found God in that bathroom in one way or another. When the report started going down on the kids and the spanking started, wow, that was brutal. And it was like, Susie said, it's got to be right, you know? They wouldn't tell you to do something wrong. In the series, we, we touched on the reporting system a little bit. That's executive producer Leslie Mattingly. We're just curious to know how the reporting system affected your relationships with each other, with your own parents, and then Jessica, when, you know, as a parent yourself with children and a husband, how, how that affected your relationships. For me, the reporting system was my salvation. So I learned really, really quick that the more a person reported, the high, more highly Tony thought of them. And I realized that if I kept reporting people, A, I was saving their soul, so I was a win-win for me. I was saving their soul because I was exposing their sin, and now they could see it and repent and be better, and B, 
people would leave me alone because they were afraid I would report them. And then, of course, when I got married and my husband started seeing the atrocities of Tony and how horrible this man was, and he would just just open up to me. He's this, he's that, he's a con artist. He's, and he would say all these things. I, 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 what did I do? I immediately reported him. And four times, four times, um, four, five, six, seven men were at our door Pull, tell, telling my husband that if he didn't get in the car and leave the compound, they were going to physically remove him. And my children would be holding on to their daddy's legs saying, daddy, don't leave, don't leave. And they were like four and five years old. And it hit me. Like, how could this report system be true? Why is it, why are they doing this to my child? You know, this can't be, there's got to be a better way. In some ways, this is the opposite of my experience. In prison, you knew that whatever trouble you had with your cellmates, you were all on one side of the bars and the guards were on another. So reporting, snitching, was a capital offense in the cell block. In Tony's world, snitching was valorized, rewarded, and he either had the instincts or the psychological acumen to break down the social loyalties and trust we naturally developed from spending time with each other. The reporting system for me was very much a time to get vengeance on people that had done stuff to me. Like Jess said, the more you report, the better, the more favor you are. You also are ostracizing yourself from the people who you love. Well, I don't know. I, I would put people on report that had done stuff to me in the prior week to pay back because I knew Tony would listen to me. And I would out and out lie. And what that did now as an adult was I I've tried to like, reconcile that like oh i hurt people and then i know i was in a situation that required the survival you know and i kind of uh um, um rationalize it if you will to to lessen my own anxiety seeing my friends beaten it it just it just did horrible things to me and it still you know has an impact on me to this day for me when i would put someone on report it was because i thought their mortal soul was in danger of hellfire the reporting thing was a lose lose for all of us and it was a win win for tony i have a very weird concept of love a lot of times i don't feel like somebody loves me unless they hate me i feel like you have to first hate me to love me and there, i still need therapy anybody who wants to donate to my therapy i'm t- I'm passing. I am passing the basket right now. Please help a sister out because I need therapy. When I saw kids being beaten, yes, I felt sorry for them. But yes, I also thought, you deserve that. Like God is trying to save your soul. God issued the beatings. It wasn't a madman issuing beatings. It was God. So after he was done breaking our minds and our spirits, then it was time to break our bodies. Having survived this experience, how do you feel about the God thing? I'm just interested to know what your personal perspective is because it might put some people off. Off of religion, off of God, it calls into question faith in faith itself. You couldn't have three of the better people in all the cults because we are literally 100%, all of us, Jessica and Ben are on opposite sides of the spectrum and I am smack dab in the middle. So this is going to be good. My path was when I got out, um, I was very apprehensive to any form of church or anything. As time went on, I, I got into college and found out my roots were Jewish. I actually went to Israel and became a Jew until I realized I was exchanging 
the Christian fundamentalism that we were taught for Jewish fundamentalism. Until that then brought me into atheism, where I'm just, I, I don't believe I need a religion. I ask myself, why do I need faith? I've now found, and some people actually call this a faith, but being a humanist, uh, finding, uh, um, improving my life in accordance with values that make my own life uh, better. For me, what I ended up deciding was there absolutely is a God and that Jesus is real, that he did love us and that he created us and that he, that there is a heaven. And the reason why that worked for me was because of the experiences I had when my mom left and I threw myself on the bed and I was weeping and I was ready to kill myself. And I, I, I was either going to kill myself or run through the woods. And I thought maybe an animal would eat me. Either way, I figured I was going to be in a better place than I was at that point. And I just felt hopeless and helpless when I was 12 years old. And I just remember as I was crying, listening to this song, it felt like somebody had come in the door and I turned to see who it was and there wasn't anybody. Now, so many people can define this as my own emotions and mentality playing tricks with me. When this person came into the room, this presence, um, I was depressed. My depression left. My, there were, there actually, I actually got this excitement about my future. It was almost as if I realized all of what I was going through was to make, I was going to be somebody so much better for it and that God was going to help me get through it all one day at a time. And my biggest way to, way to live now is love, love people. And because I do, I really do love people. And I, even though the cult may have tried to turn that, turn that around in us, I'm going to be honest with you, the people that, the kids that grew up, we sure do know how to love. We do. And that to me is a miracle. When I got out of the church, there was a period of time when I made a conscious decision to disbelieve in God. It was the loneliest, most desolate, sad, depressing, dark time in my life. Shortly after that, I did what any good cult member would do, and I joined another cult. I joined a Pentecostal, charismatic church. They were just as spiritually, mentally, and emotionally abusive as the place that I grew up. Strangely enough, that felt like home to me. It was so familiar that I was okay with it in the strangest way. Flash forward, here I am 15 years later, but I believe that God literally is love. I just want to believe that whatever love and beauty I experience in my life, I want to believe that that's because I'm experiencing God in those moments. It strikes me that Rebecca is so self-aware about how her beliefs operate. She knows that she wants to believe this. In a way, she's always been a faithful person. She had faith in Tony, and now she has faith in something else. When your faith runs that deep, it doesn't just disappear. There is Tony Alamo, who I am still enamored with, who I still love, who I still almost romanticize, not in a sexual way. For me, Tony is actually two people. In my mind, he is he exists as a split person. So there's a Tony that I'm in, enamored with. I still romanticize non-sexually this person. He was my hero. He was my pastor. There is no sunlight 
like the sunlight I felt when I was in Tony Alamo's good graces. To this day, there is no other feeling than having that man approve and validate me as a human. And then there's this other person who exists in my mind that is a monster that destroyed my family and destroyed my life. I will never, ever be a whole human as long as this life continues. I believe that. I will never not be broken. I will never not be fractured. I will never not be scarred. But on the other side of that coin, there is this man that I still love. I can't explain it. When someone treats you so horribly for so long, maybe just the absence of that, neutrality instead of pain, maybe that feels like joy. I look at them as two people who have had a huge impact on my past and really, really hurt, like Rebecca said, the people I loved and my family and, you know, my sister's gone. Um, And a lot of it had to do with her unable to reconcile not being in that place because she always feared not being in Tony's graces. But he had enough of my past. He is not getting one ounce of my future. And that's where I stand. He's somebody Jessica, I have to ask you something. Do you think that Tony and Susie, before you answer, I want you to think about it though. Do you believe that they ever loved us? I believe that they loved what they had. I don't believe that they ever really loved individually. I need to believe that they loved us. I I have to believe that. I think what broke that emotional tie was when I realized, oh my God, he never loved anybody but himself and what he was building. We could have been a product of Tony. We could have been just like him, but we're not. We're the opposite. And we want to reach out to people who are in cults to let them know, hey, guys, there is life outside here and you will be okay. In fact, you will be better than you ever dreamed. Just step away. My take is faith is a lot more dangerous than even Rebecca, Jessica or Benjamin are saying here. Because faith is believing in what you want to believe. As soon as you start doing that, your beliefs get misaligned with reality. Everything you view is through the lens of what you want to see. In Italy, people wanted to believe something about me. My prosecutor, the media, the public, they wanted to believe that I was a monster. A ruthless, psychopathic killer hiding behind an innocuous facade, a perfect record, an uncomplicated childhood. If only they had believed what there was good reason to believe. If only they had believed in facts, in evidence, not what was titillating or not what fueled their schadenfreude. I might not have ever wound up in prison. I don't want to dismiss the experiences of these cult survivors. I think they're brave for escaping and for sharing their pain and insight. They're also very self-aware about their relationship with faith, more so than a lot of us can claim. And most of us have faith in something, even if it's the justice system, our country, or our family. I think what drives us, what drives us all, is the deep need for meaning. We want life to make sense, and we especially want the shitty parts of life to make sense. Jessica said it was a miracle that she and the other kids emerged from that abusive environment as people who really know how to love. I don't believe in miracles. I won't let anyone tell me that my wrongful imprisonment was a gift because it made me the person I am today. 
but I understand the desire for your suffering to be worth something, to be meaningful. The problem is, it isn't. Suffering is a crucible, but it's not the fire that makes you who you are. It's what you do in relation to the fire. It's how you create yourself when powerful forces are trying to break you down. And honestly, however shitty my prison experience was, I'd take it any day next to the prospect of being trapped in Tony Alamo's house. Next episode, we have an exclusive interview with Alamo cult victims Summer Hagen and Amy Eddy. Being a quote-unquote wife in Tony's house, that level of isolation and being around Tony's rage, you know, living in the house with him, not being able to escape it, I think it was more than just the sexual abuse that set us apart. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll subscribe to The Truth About True Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 